to have um, Daniel here, Dan Abrelli. Uh, he used to be the director of law and corporate affairs for a global investment firm. Uh, and now you are a DPhil student at Oxford. You also were at Toronto, I think. That's right. Um, immediately prior to coming to uh, Oxford, I was at the University of Toronto doing a master's degree. In law? Yes. Um, and you're working in the field of law and economics and law and financial. Uh, law and finance, law and more finance. than law and economics. Yes. Well, thank you so much for coming. The title of the paper is The Dynamics of All Accountable Derivatives. Regulation, uh, regulations, bridging the public-private divide. Well, without further ado, Thank you, everybody, for coming today. Uh, as Frederico mentioned, uh, I'm a DPhil student here at Oxford, uh, currently in my second year, uh, and the the general thrust of my research is into the regulation of. Uh, financial products, and specifically for the purposes of my doctorate, uh, over-the-counter derivatives regulation. Uh, the paper that I'd like to present today is ultimately part of a larger project uh, respecting both over-the-counter derivatives and, more broadly, financial markets, and the regulatory challenges posed by the nature and pace of change. Uh, I actually didn't have the chance to, uh, to ask how long the formal presentation was supposed to be today. 35, 40 minutes. Excellent, because I have 40 minutes written down here, uh, which should uh, dovetail quite nicely. Uh, which should leave us, I hope, uh, plenty of time for conversation. That said, please don't hesitate to interrupt me with any questions you may have. Uh, given the audience, uh, I've attempted to curb down on the use of financial jargon and lingo as much as possible, but in the event that I lapse back into uh, a lot of heavy acronyms and arcane financial terminology, please feel free feel free to interrupt me. So over the course of the past uh, two, two and a half decades, uh, over-the-counter derivatives markets have come to dominate global financial markets. In the wake of both their precipitous growth and their perceived role as conduits for the avarice, hubris, and miscalculation which triggered the global financial crisis from 2007 to 2009, I'd like to say this is the first time I've presented where I have not simply referred to it as the current global financial crisis. Uh, it's debatable whether or not, uh, given the long-lasting effects that we may be experiencing, whether 2009 is a, a bit of an optimistic uh, date. Uh, the salient normative questions for policymakers have become how best to re regulate OTC derivatives markets, and the question that I'm going to discuss today, whom to entrust with the responsibility for the regulation. Uh, my intention through this paper and through this talk is to illustrate the importance of bridging the public-private divide, specifically with respect to the, the long-term transfer of information and expertise, and also fundamentally the alignment of incentives to achieve more optimal regulation of OTC derivatives markets. Uh, now, I've conducted uh, this exploration uh, largely through the framework provided by welfare economics. Uh, this exploration proceeds from the proposition that all potential modes of regulation, whether premised on public or private ordering, uh, should be rigorously, rigorously evaluated on the basis of their expected costs and benefits, ultimately with a view to maximizing net social welfare. <coughs> and to the extent that you'd like to during the discussion period, I'm happy to uh, explore not only my own definition of social welfare, but also some of the policy-making challenges that arise in constructing this definition. 
uh, reflective of the real-world limitations facing financial regulators, uh, optimal or efficient regulation should, for the purposes of my paper and this talk, be conceived of as, or understood as, that which maximizes welfare within resource and technological constraints. Uh, I don't propose to provide an exhaustive overview of the origins, taxonomy, or mechanics of OTC derivatives during this presentation. For those who may be interested, I canvassed them more thoroughly in the paper, uh, which you all have, uh, and I'm also more than happy to discuss them uh, at the conclusion of the presentation. I do want to note, however, that uh, modern financial markets, and OTC to market, markets in particular, are exceedingly complex. Uh, this complexity takes three forms in the case of OTC derivatives markets. One, the technical complexity stemming from uh, arcane financial terminology and what is in reality extremely dense legal documentation. Risk complexities, which stem from the fact that the risks that OTC derivatives are designed to manage are not easy to manage, and that the risks that they generate are also quite uh, complex and often interrelated. Finally, social complexity, and this goes back to my previous point about social welfare. The welfare implications of the widespread use of OTC derivatives markets uh, have not been quantitatively verified on a large scale. This opens up the policy debate as to whether, at one extreme, we should prohibit uh, the use of these instruments entirely, obviously to the other, that we should allow their use unrestricted and allow market forces to dictate. Uh, later on in the presentation, I will obviously present my own views as to the appropriate balance to be struck in that regard. The discussion of complexities provides a good segue uh, into an overview of the private and social costs and benefits associated with OTC derivatives. Uh, the primary benefit for end users uh, resides in their ability to unbundle and, shifts and shift various risks. The rancher enters into an agreement, uh, a forward, to uh, manage its pri the price of beef before it goes to market. The lender buys a credit default swap to protect itself against borrower default. A company with floating rate debt enters into a fixed rate swap in order to manage volatility and interest rates. Derivatives provide each of these end users and countless others, with the opportunity at least, to manage the various risks that they encounter in the course of their business activities. It is frequently argued that uh, the widespread use of OTC derivatives also manifests significant social benefits or positive externalities. Uh, these benefits are thought to derive primarily from the use of OTC derivatives to uh, complete asset markets, enhance price discovery, and not ironically, to actually absorb as opposed to create systemic risk. Uh, however, while OTC derivatives manifest the potential to generate significant private and social benefits, the realization of these benefits is far from certain. The principal explanation for this divergence of theory and reality is that these potential benefits uh, each, at least partially, are contingent on assumptions respecting the absence of distortions from imperfect information, bounded rationality, and agency costs. These assumptions reflect the origins of corporate finance theory, uh, and specifically OTC derivatives pricing, in efficient markets theory. Uh, and again, I'm happy to go over. Uh, please just raise your hand if we come across any concepts or ideas. Yes, yes. so over the counter, does it mean that they're also under the counter? Like, what's the... Yeah, it's, an, it's certainly an interesting distinction, and I will actually uh, get into it okay. uh, in the very next slide. But uh, to give you a preview, just as I go through the, the various uh, costs and benefits, uh, the 
the basic distinction is one between exchange traded and over-the-counter derivatives. Uh, the term over-the-counter was originally uh, a reference to uh, sophisticated counterparty, basically institutional trading that took place uh, on a counter at the New York Stock Exchange, so not on the floor of the stock exchange with a transparent bid-ask mechanism um, and such. So the term has more or less been used kind of uh, ambiguously outside of the financial services sector given its origins um, within the sector, it's intended to de just denote the simple fact that historically these transactions have taken place between sophisticated counterparties outside the environment of a regulated exchange. Mm -hmm. So going back to the, the origins of derivatives in efficient markets theory, uh, in this respect and without again attempting an exhaustive survey, it's important to acknowledge that a substantial body of scholarship has emerged, uh, most notably within the field of behavioral finance, uh, which questions the extent to which the assumptions underlying efficient markets uh, accurate, accurately reflect the reality of the marketplace. Uh, indeed, many of the potential costs associated with OTC derivatives uh, that we'll get to in a moment stem from imperfect information, bounded rationality, and asymmetries of information, and the resulting agency costs which pervade OTC derivatives markets. Thus, to the extent that uh, the assumptions underlying efficient markets theory do not hold true, one would expect a dilution of the private and social benefits associated with OTC derivatives. On the other side of the ledger, we have the, the private and social costs associated with these instruments. In many respects, they are the mirror image of the benefits. The use of OTC derivatives expose counterparties to numerous risks, including market, counterparty credit, settlement, liquidity, operational, and legal risk, and again, I'll unpack some of these terms in a moment. Furthermore, the future is obviously a risky and uncertain place. And uh, by nature, some counterparties are going to end up on the wrong side of these transactions and lose as a result. The widespread use of OTC derivatives also uh, manifests broader social costs. Uh, these costs stem from, again, asymmetries of information, the possibility of overinvestment and a related concept, excess leverage and other systemic risks which are endemic to OTC derivatives markets and which manifest the potential to create significant negative externalities. Finally, and much ink has been spilled over this, uh, OTC derivatives manifest the potential to allow regulatory arbitrage between systems. So, going back to Federico's question, uh, as a starting point, it's useful to take a look at the pre-credit crunch regulatory environment <coughs> before leaping forward to the question of what the optimal environment might look like. The public treatment of uh, OTC derivatives is contingent on whether they're classified as exchange-traded or over-the-counter. Exchange-traded derivatives are standardized instrument, instruments bought and sold on exchanges like the Chicago Board of Trade, uh, the NYSE Liffey, or Eurex. Uh, and users of exchange-traded derivatives are effectively presented with a limited menu from which to choose in terms of the underlying, and the underlying in derivatives parlance is simply that from which derivatives are derived. So this could be uh, precious metals, currencies, debt, equity, indices, really anything that you can imagine, and certainly a lot has been imagined in this regard. Uh, other conditions might include uh, those relating to settlement dates, uh, maturity dates, and strike prices. All of these matters will have been prepackaged in a sense to facilitate trading on an exchange. Uh, notably, derivatives exchanges typically provide credit support to end users 
uh, by absorbing counterparty credit and settlement risk. And I'll explain briefly what each of those is just in a, a broad, sense, broad sense. Counterparty credit risk uh, is the notion that if Federico and I are contracting with each other and there's a change in uh, my credit rating, that might have an impact on, well, that will have an impact on the risk uh, for Federico in our relationship for all sorts of reasons. Specifically in the context of over-the-counter derivatives, what many of these uh, instruments contemplate is that when my credit rating goes down, I need to pr provide Federico with more uh, capital, and, uh, or collateral uh, in this case, in order to offset that risk. And what happened in the crisis, um, for those of you who uh, may be following this, is that there was a significant pro-cyclicality pro -cycla to, cy to this, in the sense that when my credit rating was downgraded, I had to post more collateral in all of my relationships, which meant that my balance sheet was further diminished, which meant that my uh, credit rating went down again, which meant I had to provide more collateral. And in the course of a few electronic instants, uh, you can go from uh, what is essentially a viable financial services company to an insolvent one. And a prescient comment was made uh, by an anonymous observer in The Economist in 1992 uh, that I think summed up this phenomenon very well that in the absence of market liquidity, it's difficult to price an over-the-counter derivative. Um, and that, unfortunately, we have to make assumptions about liquidity existing in order to price it. This creates a paradox that uh, the big sucking sound that we all heard uh, at the end of 2008 when Lehman Brothers collapsed was that these balance sheets went from having a market, or the, the products went from having a market, which was reflected on the balance sheets of these companies with uh, a, a fresh price to effectively having no market, having to mark these uh, products to model, and finding out that their models actually assumed the market which no longer existed. Hopefully I haven't uh, gotten too far off into the finance geek portion of uh, this presentation. Going back to the role of exchanges, uh, the way that exchanges uh, fulfill this role is through uh, centralized clearinghouse and margin mechanisms. Put simply, a centralized clearinghouse is uh, a party that interposes itself in between a bilateral relationship and absorbs the risk uh, involved. So if you picture the world as uh, without a centralized counterparty, which is effectively the over-the-counter derivatives world at present, it's a series of bilateral relationships, many of which may be intricately interconnected by way of other bilateral relationships with similar counterparties. What a centralized clearing party does is clear all of that mess up by interposing itself in the middle of all transactions so that the rights that a party has, uh, uh, the, the ability to, to get recourse in the event of a contractual event is with the centralized counterparty. This performs a couple of functions. First, it enables that centralized counterparty to take a holistic view of the market and manage risk centrally. Second, for the users that uh, employ centralized counterparties, it effectively uh, obliterates the idea of counterparty credit risk because you're no longer dealing with finance company X that may have a balance sheet one day that doesn't look like it does the day after, as we've seen through the crisis, to an entity that's not managed for profit but simply managed to mitigate and to the extent that it can eliminate the risks associated with these positions. To the extent that it also requires fees, it can build up uh, a pool of assets that in the event of a systemic event can be used to uh, compensate the various uh, end users. 
So it's a very handy little mechanism. Uh, attached to this is the idea of uh, initial and ongoing maintenance, uh, or sorry, margin requirements. And this is the idea, what Frederico and I were talking about before, or sorry, what the example of Frederico and I before. If Frederico is now the centralized counterparty instead of just my counterparty, as my credit rating goes down, or more importantly, as the market price uh, moves against me, I now have to provide him with additional collateral to insure against that risk. Uh, exchanges also uh, perform important self-regulatory functions. Uh, amongst other things, they provide for dealer membership rules, trading qualifications, uh, and provide execution clearing and settlement uh, services along with, uh, importantly, approving new derivatives products. Uh, they generally discharge this function under the role of regulators such as uh, in the UK, the FSA, or in the United States, uh, a specialist regulatory body known as the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. Now, that was a lot of talk about something that we're not actually talking about today, which is over-the-counter derivatives. Uh, OTC derivatives, on the other hand, provide end-users with virtually unlimited flexibility to structure individualized terms and conditions respecting underlying price, settlement dates, amounts, and more exotic features. Uh, obviously, uh, when cast against exchange trade derivatives, their primary drawbacks uh, stem from an absence of this uh, centralized clearinghouse or margin mechanisms, and thus the private counterparties bear all the risks of their, uh, well, all the private risks associated with uh, their engagements. Uh, there exists at present no overarching public regulatory framework governing OTC derivatives in any major jurisdiction. Otherwise, as we'll talk about later, there are um, movements underway uh, both in the EU and in the United States to comprehensively regulate these markets. Provided that certain qualifications are met, however, OTC derivatives are generally exempt from the application of securities, insurance, and banking laws uh, in the jurisdictions in which they notionally take place. In the US, this is at least partly attributable to a balkanized regulatory regime which has split up uh, the regulatory framework uh, both in an institutional and functional manner so that uh, between the Commodity Future Trading Commission and the Securities and Exchange Commission, the primary financial markets regulator in the United States, there's been a heated turf battle for the last 35 years or so, which has been waged uh, in Congress, um, probably most entertainingly between the Finance and Agriculture Committees of the, uh, the House and Senate, and then also uh, in the courts, and more recently, it's spilled over into the media, uh, which has provided no, fun, or no end of fun uh, for me personally. The, uh, in the UK, on the other hand, the relative absence of regulatory intervention is largely attributable to a history of uh, non-interventionist um, regulation towards sophisticated counterparties. And this is uh, colloquially referred to as light-touch regulation. The Financial Services Authority makes great pains never to call it that itself. But uh, it's the idea that sophisticated counterparties should know better and that the rules of, uh, to throw in some legal Latin, uh, caveat emptor or buyer beware, should apply uh, more forcefully in this market than, for instance, consumer financial markets. In both jurisdictions, uh, however, it's important to note that regulators were subject to intense uh, political and public pressure relating to the competitiveness of their markets within an increasingly globalized um, financial system. Now, coming to the, I guess, what is really the meat of this paper, especially from the purposes of extra-legal governance. 
the absence of public regulatory intervention can be uh, contrasted with the activity of private actors within the sphere. Uh, specifically, private actors have stepped in uh, to fill this void and included the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, private providers, uh, trade execution, confirmation, clearing, settlement, and data repository services, and ad hoc groups of market participants brought together to deal with specific issues. So let me go into a bit of detail regarding each of these three uh, categories. Uh, and it would be very difficult to chronicle the institutional development of OTC derivatives markets without talking about the role played by uh, the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, commonly just known as ISDA. Uh, established in 1985, ISDA is the de facto trade association uh, for the global OTC derivatives industry, representing financial institutions, governments, uh, institutional investors, and uh, wealthy, um, other wealthy end users uh, across the world. Uh, is this mandate includes uh, encouraging the prudent and efficient development of OTC derivatives markets and the development of sound risk management practices and high standards of commercial conduct. Uh, ISDA has contributed to the development of OTC derivatives markets in two principal ways. Uh, first, it's developed standardized legal documentation, which I'll talk about more in a minute, uh, which has overcome some of the, uh, the collective action and coordination issues uh, typically associated with systems of private ordering. And second, it's spearheaded uh, industry initiatives aimed at addressing industry-wide uh, legal and operational issues. So prior to the intervention of ISDA, the majority of OTC derivatives actions likely took place um, on an ad hoc basis to the extent that there was no publicity surrounding these markets. People who wanted to enter into these transactions were left to their own devices with respect to how to structure them, both financially and legally. Uh, in the absence of a standardized uh, documentation, in, of a standardized language, really, of over-the-counter derivatives, was a significant impediment to their growth. In 1987, ISDA commenced publication of so-called standardized master agreements uh, for U.S. dollar and multi-currency interest rate swaps and currency swaps. Uh, this range of master's agree master agreements have subsequently been expanded uh, to include uh, more or less the entire universe um, of bilateral agreements. Uh, ISDA has also developed standardized ancillary documentation for use uh, with these master agreements, so definitions, schedules, uh, credit support agreements, and trade confirmations. The credit support agreements in particular um, are key, uh, going back to the example of uh, Federico and I entering into an agreement together. It's these agreements that uh, put together the structure of how we're going to set off risk against each other in the event of uh, events such as a downgrading in my credit rating, insolvency, or other market-related events. Uh, all ISDA documentation is reviewed periodically and amended as necessary by technical committees made up of market participants. Uh, today, ISDA documentation represents the gold standard uh, for much of the OTC derivatives market, especially uh, this bilateral swap uh, market. Uh, ISDA's efforts in generating standardized legal documentation uh, have facilitated more efficient contracting and thus lower transaction costs for market participants, leading to uh, the growth of the over-counter derivatives market. Uh, the question, of course, is whether this growth was ultimately socially, socially optimal. Uh, the second 
contribution was, is the spearheading of industry initiatives aimed at addressing legal and operational issues? Uh, perhaps most significantly, is this played an influential role in the design of contractual provisions respecting netting and collateral arrangements? So the, uh, the uh, credit support agreements of which I was speaking of a minute ago. And importantly, in terms of uh, integrity in the OTC derivatives markets, they've also made significant headway in terms of private contracting against misrepresentation and market manipulation. This is interesting because these are two of the areas where public regulatory intervention is typically concerned. In this case, uh, while regulators, uh, public regulators have not always been active, um, the, the role of ISDA has become paramount to resolve these issues uh, with the acknowledgement that market integrity benefits all market participants. Sorry, you said yes. two categories of issues. Market, Sorry. Market yeah. manipulation and... Oh, the two categories was, the first one was the contractual uh, standardization mm -hmm. uh, branch. The second was this idea of industry initiatives. Um, or it, the resolution Sorry, but within problems. that, the kinds of um, things that are being policed oh, in the uh, industry group. misrepresentations and market manipulation. Okay. Uh, and as well, I'll actually add a third to that, which is uh, the use of uh, non-public information. Uh, ISDA has also been one of the driving forces behind something called the Financial Products Markup Language, which is uh, really the, the, the standardized electronic language for uh, executing OTC derivatives transactions. Uh, and we'll see in a second that that actually came about as a result of a specific industry problem, uh, which an ad hoc group originally addressed, and that ISDA substituted in order to institutionalize a solution to this particular market failure. Uh, in spearheading these initiatives, ISDA has once again leveraged the considerable expertise of its various technical committees and successfully overcome uh, coordination and incentive issues to reduce counterparty credit, settlement, and legal risks in the case of the, uh, the netting and collateral arrangements, and then also to curb opportunistic behavior in terms of the use of non-public information, misrepresentations, and uh, curbing market abuse. Uh, again, ultimately leading to the simulation of OTC derivatives markets. Uh, while ISDA was certainly one of the first and arguably remains uh, the most prominent uh, private actors to promote the institutional development of OTC derivatives markets, uh, it has hardly been alone in these efforts. On several occasions, ad hoc groups of market participants, such as the so-called Group of 14, have converged in order to address specific operational issues. Uh, in the Group of 14 case, it was actually to address uh, a extremely large backlog of paper processing of OTC derivatives transactions. So uh, at the, in the middle of this decade, uh, when we saw the most explosive growth in OTC derivatives, uh, institutional investors, uh, banks, investment banks, uh, hedge funds, whatnot, were entering into uh, a complex uh, number, or a, a large and complex sort of intermingling of uh, these transactions. And what had happened was that they hadn't provided for the institutional support in order to process them, simply from an administrative capacity that they would have the agreement executed sitting on a pile somewhere, but it hadn't made it into its uh, systems, in terms of its IT systems, which would enable these counterparties to manage the risk better. Um, obviously, it's a lot easier uh, for parties to uh, 
have this done via technology to have a centralized database which then allows them to look across their holdings to understand and manage risk better. When those pieces of paper are sitting on a pile, you are exposing yourself to, uh, to risks that you don't even know about. So in order to address this, the, the group of 14 um, implemented a number of short-term measures designed to uh, ease this backlog. Subsequently, uh, the, all the group of 14 are also members of ISDA. ISDA took over for the more long-term solution, which was the creation of the financial products market language. Uh, lastly, in this regard, as various market segments have matured, private actors have entered the space in order to provide uh, trade execution, confirmation, clearing, and settlement. Uh, so really, uh, to create an exchange without an exchange. Uh, and data repository services of the variety that we were just speaking, with a view to enhancing transactional efficiency and re reducing uh, some of the major risks involved in FTC related transactions. Indeed, uh, these private actors have uh, been very uh, well regarded, and uh, even certain public authorities, most notably the EU, have noted that they played an important role in stabilizing OTC derivatives markets. Uh, thankfully, Lehman Brothers, as with all things, uh, seems to provide us with a good example in this regard. Uh, as industries have matured, these mechanisms have uh, appeared, so these trade execution mechanisms, clearing settlement, have appeared organically, so not all facets of the industry have seen these things arise at the same time. Uh, in those industries, or in those sectors of the industry where they're prominent, um, most notably uh, currency and interest rate uh, OTC derivatives, where these mechanisms were in place, the Lehman collapse actually presented almost no problems. That the mechanisms were able to process the transactions and um, basically to resolve uh, any valuation or contractual issues that arose. It was in the markets where this infrastructure hadn't developed yet that um, subsequent to the, the insolvency of Lehman Brothers, that we found that to this day, they still have yet some, I guess now 14 months later, they're still in the process of working out how to uh, net various positions and how to unbundle risks and to uh, repackage them and either sell them off or hold them on. So clearly, uh, that's a good example of how these private providers have actually provided a public good uh, in the sense of stabilizing uh, these markets. And ISDA is funded by the banks, or who is paying for ISDA? Yeah, uh, ISDA is funded by its membership, uh, which includes uh, most of the big banks, you, well, all of the big banks you would think the of in terms of the global yeah. players. Uh, many governments are also members, but in their capacity uh, as, as traders. As traders. Mm -hmm. uh, and it raises, you know, some of the interesting sort of quagmires that ISDA raises is that it's fulfilling the role that I'm talking about, but it is ultimately also a trade association. And ISDA is extremely active in lobbying um, securities regulators all over the world for the absence of government regulatory intervention that we're speaking of. In a sense, you can either look at it positively as an attempt to ensure its regulatory monopoly or you can look at it as being in a more uh, regulatory capture sense that ISDA reflecting its membership's um, interests has simply um, advocated the absence of government intervention because it, it ultimately benefits its members by leaving these markets only subject to private forces. So the, su the success of ISDA and other private actors uh, in promoting the institutional development of OTC derivatives markets 
uh, and addressing industry-wide efficiency and risk issues raises an important question. To what extent can and should the incentives and expertise of these private actors be employed in pursuit of the socially optimal mode of regulating OTC derivatives markets? And in many respects, this is the question that my paper ultimately seeks to address. So what is the optimal mode of regulating OTC derivatives markets? I'm going to start with uh, a broad canvas of the strengths and weaknesses of both public and private ordering. Um, starting with private ordering uh, makes sense for two relatively straightforward reasons. First, in the absence of market failures uh, which suggest that private ordering may be socially suboptimal, uh, there will arguably be little justification or political impetus, impetus for regulatory intervention uh, beyond the basic legal and institutional frameworks necessary to support markets, of course. Uh, second, and more importantly, given the litany of potential failures uh, that I've discussed, uh, and these would fall under the category of costs, and just given the experience with the global financial crisis, uh, starting with the weaknesses of private ordering uh, enables us to more clearly uh, understand the ways in which public ordering may be employed in pursuit of the optimal mode of regulation. Uh, the strengths of private ordering are those of free markets uh, under competitive conditions. The prevailing view is that market ordering will provide product differentiation, whereby the supply of regulation will more accurately reflect the range of demand, and thus result in a competitive equilibrium which will be optimal. Uh, similarly, the, the market-based nature of private ordering arguably makes such systems more innovative, flexible, and responsive uh, in responding to changing information and circumstances, which is important within rapidly evolving financial markets. Furthermore, public actors possess the strongest economic incentives to invest in the acquisition of information and expertise, and this will be a key point that we come back to. Finally, uh, systems of private ordering possess the capacity to generate regulation which transcends national boundaries. And we see this in organizations like ISDA, which is clearly, truly a global institution. Uh, whereas other bodies, uh, other principal global securities regulators operate on a national basis, the international attempts, uh, so for instance the Financial Stability Board, for instance, have been less successful in uh, generating regulation which applies across the board. The weaknesses and potential costs of private ordering, on the other hand, uh, derive from a myriad of sources. Uh, first, the conflicts of interest vis-a-vis -vis members and non-members pervade systems of private ordering. Uh, these conflicts may cause group welfare to diverge from net social welfare under a variety of circumstances. Most significantly, the interests of members will diverge from those of non-members where there persist one or more market failures, so negative externalities. Um, monopolies or cartels, asymmetries of information, or public goods. Uh, we thus face a problem. While private actors possess the incentives and expertise to generate, monitor, and enforce, and ultimately comply with socially optimal regulation, where to do so manifests expected private benefits uh, in excess of the intended social costs, this is not the case uh, where we flip the calculus. So it is unlikely, in the absence of public regulatory intervention, the private actors will internalize the full cost of their activities. The inherent conflicts of interest which pervade systems of private ordering uh, are frequently compounded by a perceived and relative absence of legitimacy. And we can talk about what I mean by legitimacy here, or what the appropriate um, version of legitimacy should be. But really, in this sense, I'm talking about the functional uh, check and balance system 
uh, that prevents monopolistic or um, similar type behaviors. Uh, while this deficit can be minimized and thus some measure of legitimacy attained through the, the implementation of due process, monitoring, reporting, and enforcement mechanisms, uh, enhancing the legitimacy of systems of private ordering uh, also manifests potentially significant costs uh, in terms of direct costs associated with their creation and also indirect costs in terms of any lost flexibility, responsiveness, or, or innovation. Uh, the need to generate regulation also necessitates the creation of bureaucratic mechanisms. To the extent that systems of private ordering contemplate that the costs associated with the creation and maintenance of these institutions will be borne by group members, uh, systems of private ordering manifest significant, if admittedly gross, potential cost savings relative to public uh, taxpayer-funded bureaucracies. Uh, furthermore, given the incentives possessed by private actors, one might reasonably expect private bureaucratic institutions to exhibit more innovative and efficient, at least in the sense of being more cost-effective, internal policies, practices, and organizational structures. However, in the absence of legitimacy-enhancing institutions, the incentives possessed by private actors uh, to minimize such costs are likely to come into conflict with these organizational mandates and regulatory objectives. Uh, furthermore, bureaucracies of all stripes manifest the potential to generate significant indirect costs in the form of bureaucratic failure. Accordingly, while the costs associated with the creation and maintenance of private bureaucratic institutions are by no means unique to systems of private ordering, they are nevertheless potentially significant to the extent that they undermine some of the unique strengths of private ordering. Finally, systems of private ordering frequently manifest significant weaknesses in terms of their ability to enforce compliance with regulation. These weaknesses stem primarily from the voluntary nature of memberships and organizations such as ISDA, and a corresponding sensitivity to the potential exodus of members in response to perceived overly burdensome regulation. In order to avoid such exodus, uh, systems of private ordering typically restrict their arsenal to rep reputational and other soft enforcement mechanisms. Accordingly, while private ordering uh, may be employed to effectively enforce compliance within close-knit communities and iterative relationships, um, or for that matter, in geographically proximate groups, um, it, it's not necessarily the case that in the context of a geographically dispersed, um, socially, culturally uh, heterogeneous uh, group such as the global OTC derivatives markets, that this, par uh, that this paradigm is necessarily uh, persuasive. Furthermore, even where private ordering is effective uh, as between, in terms of enforcement as between members, the far thornier issue in terms of social welfare is actually the enforcement as against non-members. Uh, here, once again, we encounter the inherent conflicts of interest which pervade systems of private ordering. These conflicts argue, arguably render it unlikely that private ordering will spontaneously generate the optimal, um, the socially optimal level of enforcement. So, while private systems of ordering are capable of leveraging the power of the market to accumulate information and expertise and generate innovative, flexible, and responsive regulation, these systems are plagued by inherent conflicts of interest which frustrate the generation of socially optimal regulation. The question then becomes, can public ordering do any better? So, going back to first-year philosophy and Thomas Hobbes, the primary strengths of public ordering derive from the unparalleled coercive powers of the state. These, power, these powers confer upon public actors the authority to promulgate, 
monitor and enforce regulation as they deem necessary within constitutional constraints as applicable uh, in furtherance of regulatory objectives. Where this authority is exercised through democratic uh, institutions, public modes of ordering and public actors themselves may also possess and enjoy uh, a great deal of legitimacy. Public actors are also generally expert generators of regulation in the sense that they have a developed legislative and bureaucratic infrastructure. Uh, finally, as evidenced by their very existence, public actors have overcome the collection and coordination problems which often are barriers uh, to the creation of private systems of ordering. Uh, as with private uh, ordering, the weaknesses and potential costs of public ordering flow first and foremost from the inherent conflicts of interest. Public actors serve the, serve the interests of a wide range of constituents, including politicians themselves, legislatures, government agencies, industries, firms, and special interest groups. Both public choice and regulatory capture theory uh, suggest that these constituents may be capable of exerting influence over public actors to generate regulation in pursuit of their narrow self-interest. Again, as I mentioned, this particular um, phenomenon applies equally, if not more so, to organizations such as ISDA. Public actors also frequently possess their own private incentives relating to revenue generation, re-election, empire building, or, uh, as is often the case, the avoidance of public scandal. What is more, many of the bureaucratic failures that one might think of in connection with private, private bureaucracies will be exacerbated in the context of public bureaucracies. Accordingly, it's important to maintain a healthy degree of skepticism respecting the benevolence of public actors uh, in tacit acknowledgement of the fact that the incentives possessed by these actors may not be aligned with the social optimal, socially optimal course of action. And just as we can't assume the benevolence of public actors, we also can't assume their initiates. The informational requirements associated with OTC derivatives are phenomenal. The same can equally be said of the informational requirements necessarily to regulate effectively OTC derivatives markets. Public actors do not possess the same economic incentives as private actors to invest in the acquisition of information expertise, and typically possess a disadvantage in terms of the resources necessary to acquire. Furthermore, public actors find themselves at a natural disadvantage to the extent that they can't directly observe the utility functions of private actors. Accordingly, public actors engaged in the process of designing uh, regulation generally start from a, a significant disadvantage vis-a-vis -vis private actors in terms of both market information and expertise. These asymmetries are often most acute with respect to the supply and demand, uh, supply and demand dynamics within a relevant industry, the evaluation of risk, and accordingly, uh, especially in the context of a of welfare economics analysis, the overall costs and benefits of regulation. Finally, public actors are subject to inherent jurisdictional constraints, which limit the scope of their influence. While such constraints may be relatively unproblematic in the context of many areas of domestic regulation, the realities of globalization have had a profound effect on the ability of public actors to effectively police financial markets. This fragmented global governance regime and the jurisdictional constraints uh, have created general opportunities for welfare reducing regulatory arbitrage. And if you look at the discussion that's going on right now, um, in the papers even, about the extent to which something like uh, the new RBS pay policy, which has uh, effectively banned uh, cash bonuses for employees earning over $39,000 a year, the primary concern in response to that was, was that these bankers are now going to move to New York. That is a phenomenon which pervades modern financial markets and is probably the largest barrier to effective public regulation in the eyes of many. <clears throat> so for all their strength, systems of public ordering suffer from a number of potential weaknesses. 
conflicts of interest, a lack of information and expertise, and traditional constraints, which frustrate the generation of socially optimal, or may frustrate the generation of socially optimal regulation. Accordingly, there is no guarantee that public actors will be able to prevent the private market failures which we explored earlier. So coming back to the here and now, the global financial crisis has illuminated the private and social costs associated with the widespread use of OTC derivatives. In its wake have come a tide of proposals for regulatory reform aimed at minimizing systemic risk, reducing asymmetries of information, and curbing opportunistic behavior within OTC derivatives markets. While many of these proposals are still in their conceptual infancy, these have included the outright prohibition of OTC derivatives, as I mentioned at the outset, creating end-user-funded insurance schemes, not unlike uh, exist for uh, savings accounts for banks presently, uh, enhancing public disclosure and accounting standards, beefing up civil and criminal uh, sanctions for fraud, insider trading, and market manipulation, and allocating different uh, resources or additional resources uh, towards public education uh, and enforcement. For the moment, uh, regulatory inertia on both sides of the Atlantic uh, seems to be uh, moving towards the restriction of derivatives or OTC derivatives to regulated exchanges. So, in effect, um, removing the distinction, the regulatory distinction between over-the-counter and exchange-shaped derivatives, and imposing centralized counterparties and transparent pricing mechanisms, which are again rolled into this idea of moving the OTC to market, uh, the OTC market back onto exchanges or onto exchanges. Uh, many of these proposals reflect the views of scholars and policymakers who, well in advance of the crisis, uh, call for enhanced public regulation of OTC derivatives markets. Uh, yet, few, if any, of these proposals for regulatory reform speak directly to the fundamental underlying policy issues, uh, which are, in my view, uh, identifying the socially optimal mode of regulation in light of both the asymmetries of information and expertise and the, the misalignment of incentives. So how do we move forward? One option, uh, that which I advocate in the paper, is to abandon the notion that public and private ordering are somehow incompatible or even antithetical modes of regulation. Rather, it may be possible to work constructively with the interplay between public and private ordering uh, to generate a crafted uh, policy alternative, which in essence uh, combines the strengths of both systems. Uh, the remainder of my talk is going to be dedicated to proposing just such an alternative, uh, premised on the importance, again, of bridging the public-private divide in terms of uh, information and expertise and incentives. Uh, ultimately, my proposal remains tentative, uh, awaiting both a rigorous cost-benefit analysis, which was beyond the scope of this paper, and also the identification and evaluation of other potential modes of regulating OTC derivatives markets. Uh, my proposal for reform is coerced self-regulation. Uh, not a new concept. Coerced self-regulation contemplates a degree of public governance and oversight of self-regulatory infrastructure, uh, with a view to ensuring that the incentives of private actors are sufficiently aligned with public regulatory objectives. Within a system of coerced self-regulation, public actors would assume sole responsibility for articulating the regulatory objectives that were to be pursued. Uh, with respect to the, the regulation of OTC derivatives markets, we could uh, envision objectives that included minimizing systemic risk, uh, reducing asymmetries of information, and curbing opportunistic behavior, for example. Uh, beneath these broad objectives, within an architecture of course self-regulation, would reside the, the technical regulation necessary to give fulfillment of these objectives. 
ideally the design of this technical regulation would be the outcome of a dialogic process between public and private actors, potentially through the auspices even of organizations such as ISDA. This regulation could then be generated, monitored, and enforced at the public or private level, depending on the need for uh, perceived legitimacy, accountability, uh, or also, uh, on the other side, innovativeness, flexibility, and responsiveness. Uh, course of self-regulation manifests the potential to more fully align the incentives of public, private, public and private actors in two principal ways. Uh, first, by playing an integral ex-ante role in the promulgation process, uh, coerced self-regulation arguably would engender a higher level of commitment from private actors in terms of ex-post compliance. Uh, but more importantly, the omnipresent threat of more burdensome public regulation uh, would incentivize private actors to design technical regulation which reflected uh, public regulatory objectives. Uh, indeed, the prospect of more burdensome public regulation might not only uh, incentivize private actors to promote and comply with regulation themselves, but also, uh, if designed correctly, uh, promote them to report the violations of other market participants. Um, for those who are curious, uh, just make a note that this framework is actually not dissimilar to that which exists uh, in under dynamic federalism, um, which is something that's been explored by Mark Rowe uh, at Harvard in the context uh, primarily of uh, corporate charters between uh, and the, the provision of corporate and securities law between state and federal actors. Sorry. Do you have a question, sir? No, that no, no. was, uh, no, just. Okay. Uh, and if you're interested, I'm more than happy to go in, uh, in further detail uh, afterwards about how deep those parallels go. Uh, coerced self-regulation will also facilitate the transfer of uh, OTC derivatives-related market information expertise to public actors. Uh, by cultivating the dialogic relationship that I mentioned, uh, organizations such as ISDA, uh, and public private actors could instill public actors with a better understanding of the complex technical aspects of OTC derivatives, and importantly, uh, a better understanding of the real-world costs and benefits associated with various forms of regulatory intervention. Uh, one might also expect this dialogue to generate significant dividends in the form of enhanced cooperation and information sharing between public and private actors, uh, thereby further contributing towards more effective monitoring and enforcement. Uh, at the same time, this dialogic relationship would enable private actors to acquire more fulsome understanding of the substantive content of public regulatory objectives. Um, in these ways, <coughs> self-regulation could potentially ameliorate asymmetries of information and expertise, and ultimately contribute to more nuanced rulemaking and more effective monitoring and enforcement. So the good news. Uh, encouragingly, the proposals for regulatory reform of OTC derivatives markets from both Washington and Brussels uh, to some extent reflect a coerced self-regulatory approach. Uh, in the US, the proposed over-the-counter derivatives markets act, for example, contemplates the registration of the, the private actors that I've been discussing before, so the centralized counterparties, uh, alternative trade execution facilities, and information repositories, uh, which are the, at present the private institutional backbone of OTC derivatives markets. Uh, in order to maintain registration, centralized counterparties uh, and alternative swap execution facilities uh, will be required to comply with a set of core principles which have been identified by Congress. Uh, in tacit acknowledgement of the accumulated expertise and um, really market wisdom of these actors, the proposed act actually contemplates, uh, uh, in my view, the allocation of primary responsibility to these private actors uh, towards 
promulgating, monitoring, enforcing technical regulation in furtherance of these principles. Perhaps most significantly, uh, the proposed act uh, effectively delegates the meat of the definition of a standardized OTC derivatives instrument to the exchanges and private actors. Then the significance of the word standardized uh, is that only standardized instruments will be subject to these requirements. And he who gets to decide what standardized means effectively becomes the gatekeeper of this entire regulatory regime. And I think it's significant um, that this rule uh, at present is contemplated to be fulfilled a combination of the SEC and CFTC in terms of high-level core principles, but in terms of the actual factors and mechanics of the products which will be confined to exchanges, this is all at present uh, explicitly in the act been left to exchanges and the exchange members. So by bringing centralized counterparties, swap repositories, and alternative swap execution facilities uh, within the scope of U.S. Securities and Futures Regulation, uh, the proposed registration requirements would provide the CFTC and SEC as the two primary regulators uh, with a stronger lever with which to align the incentives of private actors um, in pursuit of public regulatory objectives. Now, while the, uh, the remedial regime under the, the Act has yet to be fully sorted out, just the fact of re uh, registration becomes uh, extremely important in this regard, and the ability to deregister, although, fairly, although somewhat of a nuclear solution, becomes a tangible threat um, and a, a stick uh, designed to keep regulated actors uh, within bounds. Uh, furthermore, to the extent that the new uh, regulator registrant relationship is managed with a view to enhancing dialogue between public, and, uh, public regulators and private actors, uh, the proposed regime could ultimately, ultimately facilitate greater uh, long-term uh, transfer of information and expertise helping public regulators better understand both the complex technical aspects, as I mentioned before, of OTC derivatives and the real-world costs and benefits of regulatory intervention. Uh, enhanced, greater, uh, enhanced information expertise can also lead to greater accountability of private actors under the regime. The more public actors understand, uh, the less they need to rely on private actors for that information expertise, and the more legitimately they can come forward uh, to propose regulatory uh, um, uh, means of regulatory intervention. Uh, ultimately, it's still too early to predict the scope or substance of the new regulatory regime uh, or how regulators will approach its implementation. Uh, nevertheless, the proposal manifests uh, the, the potential, at least, at this stage to bridge the public-private divide and, uh, in the process, uh, generate more nuanced and responsive regulation of OTC derivatives markets. Didn't keep up with the slides there for a while. I'll perhaps uh, leave that one out for you. Thank you very much for your time. Uh, you've all been troopers for uh, sitting through this long. I apologize for coming over. Uh, I'm happy to discuss. Thank you very much.